As you take your seats, please open in your copy of the scriptures to the New Testament book of 1 Timothy. We are down to the last few verses of that first letter that Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy, to the church in Ephesus, which is present-day Turkey. You could still visit that city, it's still there, in much in ruins from the ancient world, and of course it's been built up with some uh, modern architecture or modern um, structures. But this, the city is known for being one of the early churches, a city where the house, one of the early churches. And here, uh, Paul has moved on. He's no longer in Ephesus. He is planting churches elsewhere. This is during the first century of the church. And the church in Ephesus is well established. And now Timothy, a young man, but the pastor there. And as you can imagine, wherever you have people, there's going to be issues, correct? Whether you're talking about at the workplace or in school or at the gym or even at home, wherever you have people, you have conflict. Because people are different. People can be demanding or people can have different preferences, different tastes, and there's going to be clashes. The church in Ephesus suffered more than just clashes because of personalities. The church in Ephesus, like every church, has the threat coming its way of false teachers, people telling them things that are not true and saying, thus saith the Lord. God told me, or the Bible says, and they misinterpret the word of God. And Timothy has a job then of correcting all this. Now, it's difficult for any one man to do it, but it's especially difficult for a young man like Timothy was. How young was he? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. When I say young, I'm not talking about a 19-year-old. Right? Uh, but nonetheless, a young man, uh, inexperienced in life, most likely, and certainly inexperienced as a pastor. So he's got his job cut out for him. Now, he has been mentored by Paul. He has been taught by the master teacher. And he also had the good privilege of being instructed in the word of God by his mother and his grandmother. So the word of God was not something brand new to him. His mother and grandmother taught him the word of God. Unfortunately, his father did not. How common it is for women to be spiritual leaders in a home, and dads, where are they? And they're having a beer in front of the game, watching the game, in front of the TV, or, or whatever it may be. That scenario is much too common, men. Much too common. Uh, we are told that we are to lead. We are to lead our homes. We are to be the spiritual heads in our homes. Well, that was not the case with Timothy, Timothy's dad, but nonetheless, God used his mother and grandmother to teach him the word of God. And of course, Paul became his spiritual father. The apostle Paul mentored him. And here he is now, a young man, leading the church. And there are many different challenges he's facing, which he needs to address, at times correct, and then other issues that are doing well, they are doing well in, and he needs to build on that. And that's what we've been doing for the larger part of this year, studying this first letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. 
And here we are, chapter 6, and let me read to you uh, what we looked at last week, and then let me read further on to verse 16. 1 Timothy 6, beginning at 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made your good, I'm sorry, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, will, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has, has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. I love that last part I just read to you. A summary of the characteristics of God. One we should keep in mind. Well, what we've been looking at here in these few verses that I just read to you is that anyone who wants to serve God has a particular list of responsibilities. There are certain duties we need to carry out if we're going to say, listen, I am being faithful to God. Um, we all want to be said of, you were faithful. Uh, on the day of, of entering the kingdom of God, or when we face Christ eye to eye, we want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, correct? That is the, our hope. However, living up to that expectation here on earth can be rather challenging. We can very easily get sidetracked. We can very easily find ourselves involved in other things instead. And yet we still want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Sometimes I think we're... we're willing to get at least just the minimal approval by God. Well, sort of good, come in. You, you, you did sort of well. You, you can enter the kingdom of God. And let me encourage you not to strive for the minimal amount of service to God so that you're getting into heaven through the back door. No. Live a life by which you are fulfilling not only your obligations to God, but you are fulfilling the desire of your heart because your heart is growing bigger and bigger for the things of God. Here, Timothy is being called to fulfill his duty. And so Paul reminds Timothy that the Christian life requires a long-term perspective. The Christian life is not a 50-yard dash that starts suddenly and ends quickly. No, the Christian life is a marathon, which requires not only discipline, but certainly a sense of urgency as well. Patience and long-suffering is what's required of everybody who professes Christ. Patience and long-suffering, 
produced in you by the Holy Spirit. A Holy Spirit-induced perseverance and resolve, like a marathon. Now, like a marathon, there's going to be times in which the running is going to get difficult. Like a marathon, the Christian life does not give you the opportunity for a break. You can't say, okay, now I'm going to take 15 minutes and rest. No, the Christian life is a marathon. It keeps running all those miles. Uh, there are stations by where you can get refreshed. That's called church. There are people there to cheer you on as you race. There are those who will push you from behind and those who will lead you from up front. But in the Christian life, in this marathon, there is no stopping. No stopping at all. What we see here in these verses, beginning at verse 13 through 16, the apostle, the founder of this church in Ephesus, is telling Timothy something I believe he already knows. But it's a good reminder. It's a good portion of instruction. He, with very fatherly love, restates to Timothy what I believe Timothy already knows all too well. It's what I do to my son when he takes the car keys. I tell him, be careful, as if he didn't know. Right? Watch for deer, as if he wasn't going to watch for deer unless I told him. Right? Don't go over the speed limit. Where is he? No. <laughs> but what, what do we do? We remind them, we state the obvious, but it's always worthy of repetition. Once again here, Paul is, is exhorting Timothy, that young pastor. He's urging Timothy to properly live the Christian life with a resolve and with a long-distance runner mentality. And in this case here, he tells Timothy, he says, Timothy, keep the commandment. Verse 14, keep the commandment. So what we're going to do this morning is break down these few verses, beginning at 13 through 16, in the order that we see them listed here. What we like to do here at Hope Church is go one verse at a time, as much as we possibly can, to understand exactly what the Word of God is saying. And what we see here in this order is at verse 13, we, say, we see why we should keep the commandment. Then verse 13 actually tells us what the commandment is. And then again, verse 14 says how to keep the commandment. And then verses 15 and 16 tell us how long we should keep the commandment, for how long we should keep the commandment. So let's start there with verse 13. Why keep the commandment? You'll notice Paul's strong words to this young pastor. He says, I charge you. I command you. Those are rather very authoritative words and indeed Paul is speaking as an apostle this is not his buddy Paul this is the apostle Paul and he's speaking very authoritatively as an apostle but he's also speaking as the founder of the church the church at Ephesus is dear to the apostle Paul but he's also speaking as a mentor as one who has taught Timothy who has become a spiritual father to Timothy and he's saying what is the clear expectation 
of a man that would be called man of God. Remember, that's what Timothy was referred to in verse 11. It says, O man of God. And if you are a man of God, if you are a woman of God, these are the things you need to keep at the forefront of your mind. And so Paul says in verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God. God is the witness. And Timothy is answerable to God, who is the witness. And it is Timothy's job to please God, not man. We need to keep that in mind. We make decisions all week long. Some of you make very important decisions daily, hourly. Your job when you make your decisions is to please God, not man. In fact, of all those decisions you make, right, big and small, it's really the small ones that matter most. The accumulation of all your small decisions or all your small choices will make up who you are. It's not those big decisions that determine who you are, but rather it's those small choices you make from day to day. The accumulation of those will determine your character and your, uh, your, your legacy, how people see you and remember you. God's vigilant eyes should motivate this young pastor. It should motivate us to obey God's command. Paul says, in the presence of God. You know, as you drive in, I, I would imagine you notice there's signs throughout that says that the property is under 24-hour surveillance. Uh, because people do things in a parking lot they should not be doing. Right? And so the signs were placed up. And the signs are not a warning. They're, they're not a warning. They're not designed to scare people. It's simply to advise you. It is a caution in that sense. It's advising you. Beware of what you do because you are being watched. Well, here, Paul is saying the same thing to Timothy. He says, beware because you are being watched. In the presence of God, I charge you. There is a God who's forever seeing us. Now, if you're doing something wrong, that's kind of scary. But if you're living for Christ, that is so encouraging that he is there with you, that he is watching you. He has not closed his eyes and said, I'm not interested. No, he's there with you. He's watching you. He wants to be with you. And, and indeed, even when we are living in opposition to Christ, it is good to know that he's watching us. Why? Because then he can correct us. Nobody likes being corrected, but boy, we like the results, don't we? This is a compelling reason as to why the Christian should live the Christian life. Why we should live like Christians. The watchful eyes of God. And the importance of God's watchful eyes are underscored for us in two different ways here in this verse. Notice, first of all, the, 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 the watchful eyes of God, the importance of that watchful eye is underscored in that we have here the powerful authority of God toward us. It says here that God is the giver of all life. 
the giver of all life. Literally, it means he is the preserver of all life. Not only did he give you life, but he preserves your life. Whose life? All life. Human and non-human. So that nobody, but nobody, is independent of him. And as the one who preserves your life, you can therefore be steadfast, immovable, keep moving in the right direction. Why? Because he preserves you. He will watch over you until it's time for you to no longer be. He will watch over you. God will see you through. That's one of the virtues that we are to pursue, isn't it? Steadfastness. Remember what we read in verse 11? Along with steadfastness, we're supposed to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and gentleness. But this morning, let me just place emphasis on that steadfastness. This a sense of, I am not movable, I am not going to be deterred, I'm not going to give up. I will be steadfast. Your life, my friends, is due to God. He is the preserver of your life. We like to live as if God did not, but the truth is the only reason we are alive and breathing today is because God gives us breath. The reason you were able to get out of bed is not because you went to bed early last night. It's because God gave you the ability to get up out of bed and gave you life today. And in my case, he's been doing it for 61 years now. I count on it that he's going to do it again tomorrow. But this for sure... The only reason why we are here today and alive is because God has preserved us and co continues to give us life. And it's not just spiritual life, your physical life as well. Your vitamins are going to help, that's for sure. Your medications, keep taking them. Balance of nature, it can only be good for you, right? But it's God who allows you to wake up every morning and live, and this is the God who is watching over you. That's good news. He has not left you alone. He has not closed his eyes to you. Not only that, not only is God's eyes watching you, but notice here that uh, Paul also speaks about the presence of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who is the testimony before Pontius Pilate. He made a good confession before Pontius Pilate. He bore witness, if we were to look at this literally, he bore witness to the noble confession before Pontius Pilate. I appreciate the fact that here it mentions Pontius Pilate because it sets for us in very concrete, objective ways the reality of what Christ did and where he lived and when he lived, it was during the reign of Pontius Pilate. He spoke to Pontius Pilate. He was interrogated by Pontius Pilate. This is not fiction. This is a reality. This is historical truth. And here it says he made this noble confession before the governor, Pontius Pilate. And as I was reading, I was wondering, what does before mean? Does before mean that he, he did this before he was be in front of Pontius Pilate? He lived a life 
and made this noble confession before he came to that interrogation point? Or does it simply mean that he stood before Pontius Pilate and made this good, noble confession? And honestly, the answer has to be both and. Before he was interrogated, Christ consistently lived the proper life. The life that his father expected and demanded of him. And then he came to that point in which he was arrested and interrogated. Where? Before Pontius Pilate, in front of Pontius Pilate. In fact, in John chapter 18, Pontius Pilate asked him, So you're a king? And Jesus Christ responded in verse 33, I am who you say. You say that I am a king. And then verse 37, Christ said, Everyone who listens to me, everyone who listens to me, to my voice, listens to the truth. These are the words of Jesus Christ. The noble confession listens to the truth. You see, my friends, Jesus Christ was steadfast because he trusted his heavenly Father to see him through. He knew he could endure because his Father was with him. And I encourage you then to let the fact that God's eyes are watching over you and that his presence is there with you. Let these two factors motivate you to obey God's commandments. Not simply threaten and scare you, because that's how a lot of people see God. There is a sense in which we should fear God. We need to fear God. But Christian, for us, there's even more than that. There's also the solace, the comfort of knowing that our God is with us and he is on our side. He's not against us. He is not opposing you. Well, what is this commandment? It helps tremendously for us to understand what the commandment is if we are going to obey the commandment. Paul said, uh, told Timothy to keep the commandment. Well, what commandment? Well, it's listed for us there of sorts in verse 14. Uh, Notice here, it does not say keep the commandments, as in the Ten Commandments. No, it says keep the commandment. And Paul actually does not clearly tell us in this particular sentence what this vital commandment is. But again, if you read the context, you will see what the commandment is. The commandment is what we saw last week in the verses just prior to that, 11 and 12. This is the commandment that Timothy is to keep. He is to flee from sin. He is to pursue Christ. He is to strive or fight for his faith, the faith, and he is to hold on to the promise of eternal life, verses 11 and 12. That's the commandment. And and honestly, the commandment he's giving to this pastor back 2,000 years ago is still the same commandment for us. You may not be a pastor, but the commandment is still for you. This is the goal of every individual who professes Christ. This is what we need to be doing. This is what we need to be about. So when somebody asks, so tell me something about yourself. Instead of talking about how many children you have or what kind of work you're doing or where you're studying, try this. Well, I'm a child of God. You want to know more about me? I am striving to flee from sin and pursue my faith 
that I may be steadfast so that I can grow in the Lord. Now, you might scare a few people away if you say that. But I do think we need to think more readily in these terms. That this becomes our definition of who we are. A person who is striving to take hold of the eternal life that's promised to those who profess Christ. Meanwhile, my friends, do not forget, do not ignore or overlook the public confession you made. That's what Paul said to Timothy. Remember the confession you made. You, you have this goal, striving for your faith, fighting the good fight, but don't forget the good confession you made publicly. And of course, that refers to baptism. Timothy was a baptized individual. He made a public confession. He says, don't turn yourself into a liar. You said you were devoted to Christ. Well, then now be devoted to Christ. And not only that, but Timothy, remember, you're an ordained minister in the church of Christ. You made that public confession as well. And so, Timothy, persevere. Persevere in what you have told everybody else you are. Don't give up. Don't look back. Don't slow down. Persevere. Be steadfast. Turning back or giving up is simply not an option in the Christian life. You realize that, right? Many of people think that is an option on their list. For now, I'm just going to turn around and give up. But I'll be back later. It's not an option. It's not a choice that God gives to us. The Christian life consists of Holy Spirit-empowered resolve. It's a marathon. And that marathon is going to carry you in different directions in life. At times it will be easy, yes, but often it will take you down some deep, dark valleys. Other times this marathon is going to take you up some very steep, difficult hills and then across some flat plains and into some arid deserts and maybe even frozen tundras of life. But yes, at times you will have a beautiful mild weather, running under the sun with a breeze on your back, with green grass under your feet, and life will be easy and enjoyable. But we all know from our own experiences how infrequent that is. This is how I see most of life. Those days of goodness and gentleness are there, but seldom are they alone. Often, God blesses us in the midst of trial. And whereas those days are good, there's also the bad. And we need to learn not only to coexist with both, but to live well and to trust in the Lord and not allow the bad to keep us from persevering in Christ. We have to keep running. It is so easy to want to give up, and it's so easy to actually give up. There's your commandment. Flee sin, pursue Christ, fight the good fight. Don't forget the public confession you made. And then again, verse 14, you see how to keep the commandment. It's rather simple. How do you keep this commandment? How do you keep 
from giving up? How do you keep on going? You notice here that Paul says in verse 14 that this commandment is to be kept unstained and without reproach. Unstained and without reproach. So in and of itself, this commandment is to be without any blemish, no, no, no soiling whatsoever, no spots, clean, pure. But publicly, this commandment is to be without blame or credible accusation. In other words, the commandment is pure. Make sure it stays pure. Now, how you live out this commandment, make sure nobody can raise a finger and say, you're not doing it. Or you're doing it poorly. You're doing it wrongly. Keep that commandment from being in any way mocked or reproached by those who live alongside of you. Don't let it be said that you gave up. Run the race. That's what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, to continue running the race. And there we saw that the Apostle Paul says he has to deny himself. He has to put himself aside in order to keep running the race. Run the race. Fight the good fight of the faith. I often worry that we are getting weary and not running the race as hard as we were. Could that be true? My friends, do not weary, do not get tired of running the race of the Christian faith. Do not tire out. As a servant of God's, Timothy had a twofold duty. Look at what he was to do. First of all, he was to proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then he was to protect the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. First, I have to proclaim it, and then I protect it. How do I proclaim it? Well, I just go out and speak it. How do I protect it? How I live it will protect it. You see, if I am living the, uh, uh, the gospel in a wrong way, then I am bringing curses on it. I am bringing reproach to it. I am not protecting it. So I need to not only speak it, I need to protect it. Now, some people say, well, if I can't protect it, I won't speak it. That's not what the Lord tells you to do. The Lord says, speak it and protect it. Speak it and live it. How many times I've been told by people that I don't go to church because there's so many hypocrites there. You know what they're saying? They're saying there's a lot of people who proclaim the gospel, but they don't protect the gospel. And unfortunately, it is true. So many of us do not live as we ought to. But I thank the Lord that we're trying. We're trying. When we stop trying, then we do great damage to the kingdom of God. Keep running. You may be running slower than the person next to you, but keep running. Keep running. Don't give up. Proclaim the gospel. Protect the gospel. Look at what the Apostle Paul tells Timothy in his second letter. Jump over to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. It's just about two, three pages away. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 15, 16, and 17, Paul says this to Timothy. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. In other words, 
protect the gospel you're proclaiming. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. And go over, well, backwards, one, one chapter, to chapter 1, verse 13, 2 Timothy 1, 13. It reads this way. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. How do you protect the gospel? Follow the pattern of sound words that are taught to us in the scriptures. Do it in faith and in love, especially for those who are in Christ Jesus, but because of Christ Jesus as well. Ignore any of these, my friends. Ignore any of these requirements, and you will have chinks in your armor, and the evil one will find them. Satan will find ways to destroy you if indeed you ignore these principles. Beware. Here is the crucial element in Paul's command. In order to keep the commandment unstained and without reproach, Timothy had to keep himself unstained and without reproach. You see? God's watchful eyes and his ever-present presence made this possible for Timothy to do. Therefore, he could be steadfast. God was with him. God's power was with him. His presence was with him. God is watching. God is with me. I am not alone, therefore I can be steadfast. Now notice the text as I say, it will be easy. It will not be easy. Very few things in this life are easy. A friend of mine just published a book. He says, everything comes to me so easily, he tells me. He wrote a master's thesis for his degree, and somebody said, I really like this. Can we publish it? And now it's a book. Well, he needed somebody to write a forward. And he got a very uh, um, very well-known theologian to actually write the forward. Um, all he did was pen a note to the guy. He never met him, never talked to him. He said, sure. I said, how'd you do that? How'd you get him to write your forward? He goes, I asked him, and he did. He read a rather significant book. The man read the book and he wrote the foreword. We have another author among us, too. And Gigi just published a book, by the way. And you might want to grab it on Amazon. But very few things come easy for most of us. Would you agree? Would you agree? We fight. We work hard for it. My friends... Fight so hard, work so hard for your life in Christ, that you would grow in Christ, that you would protect his gospel so that it would not be reproached by the way you live it. Fight to be steadfast. Fight to persevere. It will not be easy. That's why it's called a fight. Well, take a look. The last couple of verses there. How long should 
Timothy, keep the commandment. For how long should he keep the commandment? For how long should we keep this commandment? Uh, you'll notice once again that there is an eschatological purview here. That Timothy needs to consider not just today, not just tomorrow, but long term. He needs to look towards the end. Paul keeps bringing this up. Paul writes here, how long should he keep fighting, persevering? He says, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a long time. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's return will be the final proof of Christ's claims. You know, he, he said he is the Christ, and he said, I'll prove to you that I am the Messiah through my resurrection, recorded for us in John chapter 2. And there will be a second proof that Christ was telling the truth. And that's when he comes back. Many people, I've noticed, struggle to believe that Jesus Christ is going to return. It's been, after all, 2,000 plus years. And so they say, well, I don't think that's true. I think that's just fiction. Uh, people think it's too far-fetched. It's imaginary. It's like a, a folklore. More folklore than fact. Too unbelievable. They, they just don't want to accept that Jesus Christ is coming back. But keep in mind, my friends, that when Christ came the first time, many people said, oh, he's not coming. And when he did come, many people said, oh, he's not the Christ. Many people did not believe, and yet he did come. And yes, and yet he was the Christ. And people said he wouldn't be, but he was. Not only that, but if Christ was able to leave his place in glory and come the very first time to us, can he not leave his place in glory a second time and come to us? Why is it so hard to believe? But what stands out to me mostly about this inability to believe that Christ is coming back uh, is how people are willing to believe in the first coming, in, in the Christmas story. Uh, I find of the two, the first coming the hardest to believe. Uh, when you consider the facts, uh, that God would leave his place on, in glory and come to earth which he created, and come as a child? That he would be born of a virgin? That he would be sinless? That he would be rejected despite all that he said in all his miracles? That he would be taken and hung on a cross? That he would die and resurrect and then ascend? Now that's hard to believe. And yet we believe it. And why do we believe it? Because we know it's true. Because he's proven to us that it's true. If that first coming, the first advent, is credible, how much more then is the second advent credible? Notice what I think is very interesting about the Apostle Paul. Whenever he begins to think of the coming of Christ, he breaks out in song. We have here... A beautiful description of our God. Uh, it, it looks like it is um, that, that, that these are the lyrics to an ancient um, hymn, an ancient song, but it could likewise be a creed. 
Whichever, whether they spoke it or sung it, here it is, something that's very dear to the Apostle Paul. He, he does something similar if you go back to chapter 1, verse 17, when he begins to think and talk about the return of Christ and being in the presence of God. In chapter 117, he says, To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And here he does something similar. In chapter 6, the idea of being in the eternal presence of God to the Apostle Paul just opened up floodgates of joy and anticipation. He longed for it. And he had a pretty good life here. But he longed to be there in the presence of God. He so knew Christ he was so enriched by his fellowship with God that he longed to see him face to face. And he lays out this description of God. He gives to us here a theology of God through a doxology. A doxology is a spoken praise. And he writes, He who is blessed, meaning happy, or even one who is who is." Envied, God, blessed, and only sovereign. That is to say that God is the possessor of all power. He is the finite, uh, uh, final ruler. King of kings and Lord of lords. Yes, there are other kings. Yes, there are other lords. But God reigns over all of them. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. They are his subjects. He goes on, he says, who alone has immortality. That is to say that there is no end to the life of God. He alone is without death. Who dwells in unapproachable light. Here we have a description of the brilliance of God. A luminosity which human eyes cannot tolerate. A brilliance sustained by his magnitude. A brilliance so great that if it were not by God's grace, we would suffer under it. Whom no one has ever seen or can see. In order for us to see God, God actually has to cloak himself to protect us. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Here we have a response to his greatness as well as an acknowledgement of his greatness, of his magnitude. He attributes honor to God, and he acknowledges God as sovereign, one who has no end to his rule. He's not like our rulers that have to be elected <clears throat> every so many years. No, no. <clears throat> Rather, God has <clears throat> power, <clears throat> excuse me, power and the right and ability to reign forever and ever and ever and ever. There's no end to his reign. And by the way, this is the God that's with you. And this is the God that's watching you. This is the God who has watchful care over you. It's good to know. My friends, God is not subject to our wishes 
God is not devised by our imagination or our fabrication. God is who he is. And we cannot change him. We should never want to change him. And this is the God that watches with, over us and is with us. And thus we have reason to persevere, to persist, to be steadfast, to keep that commandment. Don't look back. Keep running forward. Fight the good fight of the faith. Let that be your encouragement this week.